Now we are going to invite up Haziel, who's going to come and read our scripture for us in Spanish and in English to remind us that the truth of God is for the whole world. Thank you, Pastor. Um, Hechos 15, eh, del 12 al 18. Entonces toda la multitud cayó y oyeron a Bernabé y a Pablo que contaban cuán grandes señales y maravillosas había hecho Dios por medio de, los, de ellos entre los gentiles. Y cuando ellos callaron, Jacobo respondió diciendo, varones, hermanos, oídme. Simón ha contado cómo Dios visitó por primera vez a los gentiles para tomar de ellos pueblo para su nombre. Y con esto concuerdan las palabras de los profetas. Como está escrito, después de esto volveré y rectificaré el tabernáculo de David que está caído y repararé sus ruinas y lo volveré a levantar para que el resto de los hombres busque al Señor y todos los gentiles sobre los cuales es invocado mi nombre. Dice el Señor que hace conocer todo esto desde los tiempos antiguos. Acts 15, 19-21. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Far, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Thank you. Gracias, Haziel. Thank you. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really feeling grateful today um, just to get to sing and worship with such joy. Ashton Drummond was smiling and Pete trying to keep that guitar in tune. It just made me happy. Uh, hearing the good report of the student ministry, uh, I got to help out a little bit uh, during the morning for a brief window. Great job, Pastor Jason and the whole Uh, student ministry team. So grateful for you guys. <clears throat> grateful for, as David said, the generosity of the people. It's just, man, I'm grateful. Grateful for you jumping in last minute, Haziel, to read the scripture. And Man, uh, we've got a lot that I hope to get through today. Acts 15 is where we find ourselves in our series through the book of Acts. We know that the gospel message started in Jerusalem, and then it went out to Judea, then to Samaria, and now we're in the ends of the earth section of this important story of our, our, uh, our big brothers and sisters in the faith from generations past. And it's not an overstatement to say that Acts 15 really is kind of the zenith, like the, like the peak of this storyline. And some incredibly important things happen here. And there is so much, just literally about three different sermons that I had prepared. So I've got a lot in one sermon that I want to get through. Um, and so I, I just, I want you to pray with me and for me and for our time together. So will you join with me in this? God, we thank you that your word is solid ground. And even as we confessed earlier, we fail to live up to the truth of your word. But God, we are saved by faith in Jesus and the fact that he has lived your word perfectly. Jesus, you are the word. Become flesh, crucified and risen again for our salvation. And Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence right now. Would you fill me to teach with truth and with clarity? Holy Spirit, would you soften all of our hearts and would you sharpen our minds as we try to think about the nature of the scriptures that we believe in? Lord, we love your word. We love your spirit. May we never uh, pit one against the other, but recognize, Lord God, that we stand firmly on the foundation of the truth of your word as we are empowered and carried along by your spirit to live a life that's glorifying to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. <clears throat> so in our house, we have a dish, we have a couple different dishes, and 
My wife will usually put out some little seasonal treats or some things that are, you know, candies or whatever. But oftentimes the default is just trail mix. And I go by the trail mix and I walk past and I think to myself, I'm going to grab an M&M. And then I get to the trail mix and it is only peanuts and almonds left. (laughs) Maybe a few raisins here and there. And I think to myself, how dare they? How dare those children, who's raising these children, uh, to go past and just pick and choose the parts that they like and leave behind the things they like. I wanted to pick and choose the things that I like and leave behind the parts I don't like as much. And it's a silly illustration, but isn't that kind of typical of our human nature? You're watching a football game. It's your guy, clearly commits pass interference, but you're like, but I don't want it to be pass interference. So you start to make justifications. Well, the, the rule says this, and you didn't really do that. Knock it off. You just, your team stinks, and you just you want them to get any help that they can, Right? Or when you roll up to that stop sign and you don't really stop, you just kind of go through and you take your right turn because, well, those stop signs are for people who are bad drivers, not good drivers like me, right? Anybody convicted yet? You know what I'm talking about? Picking and choosing what you want to listen to, what you want to pay attention to. I had you convicted at trail mix because some of you do it too. Now, sadly, this is one of the objections that people in our culture raise about Bible-believing Christians particularly Christians who really seek to take the scriptures seriously, quote-unquote. You Christians pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to believe. About eight years ago, I was a worship pastor of a church in Tacoma, and one of our band leaders said, hey, I've got a friend, and we've been talking, and he, uh, he would love to meet up with you. He just, I think the questions are... I need, I need a pastor to, to meet up with him. <clears throat> he wasn't able to join us, so I went and I, I met this person. We met at a Starbucks. We sat down inside of a coffee shop. Remember that? I shook his hand. Remember that? <sighs> oh, how do you know so-and-so? Oh, I know him. About, I mean, maybe two minutes worth of pleasantries. And he goes, so yeah, I was hoping to meet because I just want to know, why is it you Christians hate gay people so much? Whoa, all right. Well, first of all, I'm not supposed to hate anyone. I'm supposed to love everyone, but that's a pretty big question. Like, do we have, how much time do we have to get into this? And he proceeded to unpack for me a pretty familiar argument in our culture, in our day, is you Christians say things like, like sexual activity is to be between a married man and a married woman, and that's it. But yet you ignore these other parts of the Bible where it says, like, don't eat pork, or where it says to not wear clothing of, of mixed fibers. You're picking and you're choosing and you're a hypocrite. Quick show of hands. Anybody ever heard something like this? So is the accusation true? Is it untrue? Is it, are are we just ignoring? Are we playing fast and loose with the scriptures? And in fact, Acts chapter 15 raises this very question. Because in a minute, we're going to see they're, they're really wrestling through this question of how Jewish do the Gentile believers have to be? How specifically do these Gentile believers need to be circumcised in order to be a part of this Jesus movement? And we're going to see the decision is maybe a little bit unusual. Setting aside the law of Moses, the Torah given by God at Sinai, for something different. So this passage raises this very question. And I hope to get across today the big idea that that commitment to Jesus includes commitment to the scriptures that he taught. There's no way that I can address everything that needs to be said or everything that could be said about this. 
So I'm going to do my best to show you in this passage how this question is raised, and then we're going to zoom out and try to think with a broadly biblical framework about how we understand the Old Testament, specifically how we understand the Torah. And I mean this sincerely. As I'm teaching and as I'm sharing things, if you have questions, please write them down, email them to me. Um, I had a number after the first service as well, and I intend at some point this week either a blog post or maybe a, a bonus podcast episode or something like that to try to address some of the questions that are raised. So write down your questions as we go. Let's pick it up. I'm going to try to go through this whole story <clears throat> so that we can see a few things uh, to set this all up. Acts 15 verse 1. So we're in Antioch, but some men came from Judea, that's the region of Israel, Jewish men, they became to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, after Paul and Barnabas engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. We need to, we need to call a council. We need a big leadership meeting about this issue. Now, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and the sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, by the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the, listen to this, believers who were also Pharisees, I know for some of you, you're so used to thinking of the Pharisees as the bad guys, it's hard to break out of and actually see what the Bible itself says. There are Pharisees. It's, it's, a, it's the more conservative, uh, the more cautious sort of party. There were the Sadducees. And again, this is gross oversimplification. oversimplification but the Sadducees would have been a little bit more of like the, the liberal wing of the Jewish leadership. And the Pharisees, the more conservative wing. But they're genuinely believers in Jesus. And they're trying to call people to hold fast to the word of God. Good for them. But they're missing some context. They're, th they're thinking in a, in a narrow viewpoint instead of the big picture. And they say, well, we have to do it. It's necessary to circumcise them. And we have to command them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, well, that sounds like a church leadership meeting to me, uh, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, this is Peter, Simon Peter. He says, listen, you know that God made a choice in these early days that by my mouth, non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, would hear this gospel, this good news, and they would believe. God picked me, you guys. Remember that whole thing with Cornelius and the sheet and the, the animals and the vision? And God, God who knows the heart, God knows the heart. He's not looking on the external. He bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just the same as he did for us. No difference. Remember speaking in tongues, speaking the truth of God, prophesying, all of it, it's the same. He made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Hey friends, how are we saved? By faith in God's promised Messiah, not through works. By the way, how were people saved before the Messiah came? By putting their faith in God's promised Messiah. Salvation has never, will never, can never be about our works or our moral efforts. It is only and forever about putting our faith in the promised Redeemer of God. 
Okay, you with me? Like that is just fundamental. If you, if you think that salvation in the Old Testament was by works and now in the New Testament it's by grace, you are flatly wrong. You need to understand that it is, he says there's no distinction cleansing their hearts by faith. Listen to what Peter says. Now then, why are you testing God? By putting a, net, a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. You can't tell them they have to obey the law to be saved. That is an unbearable burden. That is not a right reading of the Torah. We, we didn't even live up to it. Why are you trying to command them to do that? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved. We Jewish people are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they are. That's the gospel right there. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again. If you lived before the coming of the Messiah, you put your faith that God would send the Messiah. We live after the coming of the Messiah. We look back and say, I can't believe God sent the Messiah. This is such good news. We're all saved by faith in the Messiah. Now, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. I th- you just got to think they had a reputation. And they started describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they stopped speaking, James responded. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when Pastor Jason taught that James, the disciple, was executed. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. It's not that James. You know what James this is? This is James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And the New Testament doesn't really fill in all the details of how he went from, hey, brother Jesus, I think you're kind of crazy and you might need to stop doing this Messiah thing to I am now leading in the Jerusalem church and calling everyone to put their faith in my half-brother as the son of God. Details that maybe the Lord will tell us in eternity. I just wish I had them right now because I'm curious. My brother has never been tempted to worship me. Okay, so James gets up. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, which is, it's interesting, it's the Aramaic form of Simon. I think that Luke is putting his Aramaic name there to show us that this whole conversation is taking place in Aramaic. Like, this is a very Jewish conversation right here. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And, and this isn't some random thing. This is, the, the words of the prophets agree with this because, you know, like I was just reading in Amos chapter nine, quote, after these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. That's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The, the, the tear down this temple and raise it up again. Jesus now is the new temple of God. And the reason I'm going to do that, God said, is so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even those random Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Friends, it was always the plan that God would use the people of Israel to be different from the world in order to be a blessing to the world so that all people from all nations, from all languages could come and be a part of the family of God. That was always the plan. They're just wrestling with what to do, finding themselves in a stage of the plan that's new. Verse 19, James says, Therefore, in my judgment, in my estimation, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Because being circumcised as an adult sounds difficult. But instead, we should write them here just a few things. Number one, abstain from things polluted by idols. Okay, makes sense, good. From sexual immorality. Yep, tracking, okay? 
from eating anything that has been strangled. Huh. That one wasn't even on my to-do list, like ever. And from blood. Blood? Just, like, from having blood? Or from, like, what? Like, just... For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Now, we're going to come back to this ruling in greater detail in a minute. Let's keep going. Kind of unusual, though, right? When you first read it, that's it. Not even, like, the Ten Commandments. Blood, strangled animals, things defiled by idols, sexual immorality. Verse 22. So the apostles, the elders, the whole church decided to select some extra guys who were among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they chose a guy named Judas, really common name. So he had a second name called um, uh, Barsabbas and Silas. And these are both leading men among the brothers. So they wrote a letter. Here's a letter from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Hey, we, we heard that some people came to you without our authorization, and they troubled you with their words and have unsettled your hearts. So we made a unanimous decision. We wanted to select some other men to go with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul. They, they've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we sent Judas and Silas, and they're going to personally tell you the exact same thing that's in the letter. You're going to get an email, and you're going to get a voicemail, and you're going to get a certified mail. Like, we want you to know that this really is the decision. The email's in the Greek, you have to know. Uh, Verse 28. For it was, oh, I love this verse. It was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours There's yet another sermon on God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but I don't have time to preach that sermon. Keep going. Not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. A little bit different order. Number one, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Like, they're just so happy. There's unity. There's clarity. This is a good day. Both Judas and Silas, who were prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message, which is my new favorite verse in the entire Bible. (laughs) <laughs> after spending some time there, anytime I'm like, oh, I'm going long, I just, no, Acts 1532, Acts 15:32. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace, back to Jerusalem by the brothers and sisters who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. Okay, this chapter is not hard to understand. It's just on the surface level. It's not hard to understand, but it raises some questions. So the first one is, okay, what is the deal with this ruling? Why are these, why is that the top four things that they pick? Again, why not the Ten Commandments? Why not, you know, other things that might be a little bit more widely applicable? What's going on here? And I think that the best I've come to understand, and I hope this is helpful for you, we need to look at it from three angles. And the first angle is that this ruling has to do with idol worship. This has to do with idol worship. 
Obviously, when it talks about meat that is sacrificed to idols, there's a clear connection there with idolatry. The way that these pagan temples would work is they would have these big temples. People would bring their sacrifices. The animals would then be butchered and they would be set up in a, you know, an open air meat market right outside of the temple. And people would come buy the meat and then that money would go right back into the temple to fund their pagan idol worship. And so the elders and the apostles say, hey, let's not even participate in that whole system. Let's get our meat somewhere else. Let's not even eat meat if we can't find it. The idea of blood, there is some archaeological evidence to suggest that in certain pagan rituals, the drinking of blood took place. But it also is related to the strangling of animals in these temples. They wouldn't want to, it wasn't like the the Jewish system of sacrifice where they would slaughter the animals and sprinkle the blood everywhere. They would kill the animals by strangulation and then the blood would stay in it. That's particularly offensive to Jewish people. And then afterwards they would be butchered elsewhere because you needed the temple to stay clean for sexual immorality. And I know it sounds very strange to our ears, but most pagan temple worship included cult temple prostitutes, both male and female. That part of worship is you would come in, you would offer your sacrifice, you would say your prayers, and then you would sleep with someone. So all of these activities have a connection to pagan idol worship. And this ruling is in effect saying, we're done with that. There is one true God. He is to be worshipped, him and him alone. He has revealed himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and he alone deserves our devotion and our adoration. We're not going to participate in any of the pagan idol worship of the day. So that's one angle we need to look at it. There's a second angle that this ruling, these instructions have to do that which is common to all of humanity. You know, there's a, this gets into a really fascinating subject, something that's hotly debated among uh, Jewish people, modern and ancient, called the Noahide laws. But in essence, what it says is there are some laws that predate the giving of the Torah. They don't have, they don't have to come from God on Mount Sinai. They are just universal to all human beings. So this idea of blood, if you go back to Genesis 9, after God spared Noah and his family from the flood, he, he gave some instructions. And one of those instructions is do not drink blood or do not eat meat that has the blood still in it. Why? Because blood is life. Blood is sacred. Life is sacred. Treat human beings and, and even living creatures like animals, take the blood seriously. Life is a precious and a sacred thing. We don't mess around with blood. Or you think about the angle of, of, of um, sexual immorality. I just did a wedding yesterday. Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, from the very beginning, God made them male and female. The man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus paints this portrait of from the very, very beginning. This isn't something about Judaism. This isn't something about Mount Sinai. This is just something about the way that God created the universe, that marriage and consequently sexual activity is to be between a man and a woman who are united in the covenant of marriage. This is not a Jewish thing. This is a human thing. And even the idea of idolatry, Idols. Why would you make a statue? Why would you make an image of God? Do you know what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1? Again, way before Sinai. Who was created in the image and likeness of God? We are. 
And in the Hebrew, the word for image is the same word for idol. It might sound strange to you, but like you don't need idols because we are the idols of God. You don't need images. We are the image of God. I know that's a, a, a strange way of phrasing it, but idolatry is, is universally condemned because human beings reflect God. We are the image of that invisible God. So this ruling has to do not with specific Jewish stuff, but just that which is common to humanity. And the third angle is it has to do with something like just common love, courtesy, common decency. I mean, there's a great relief for the Gentiles to say, okay, we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to get caught up on you know, a thousand and a half years of legislation and, and laws and customs and rules and festivals and things that we're just now getting brought up to speed on. But there's great rejoicing for the Jewish people as well because these Gentiles are coming in with all sorts of strange customs and all sorts of things. And, and some of the stuff about blood and about sexual immorality is meant to help them, like, don't, don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother. It's interesting, you get into Romans and 1 Corinthians later, the Apostle Paul, even when he's talking about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, Paul, Paul kind of says, he goes, you know, that whole meat sacrificed to idols thing, he's like, it's not even really a thing because idols are just worthless. He goes, but if it would cause your brother to stumble, don't do it. Love them, respect them, forego your rights and your privileges so that you can love and care for them. So this ruling has to do with idol worship, It has to do with morality that is common to all human beings. And it has to do with courtesy for people who come from a different culture from you. So you could say, great. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. That's awesome. We are not under the Torah. We can just throw the whole thing out then, right? Just those four things. Certainly wasn't going to have, you know, have any strangled, you know, chicken for dinner or whatever. Like, yeah, okay, cool. And the sexual immorality thing, I understand that's a pretty important thing, but I, I don't need to really even pay attention to the Torah. Wrong. Because what did James say? Since ancient times, he said this back in verse 21, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city. Jewish people got scattered all throughout the Roman world. Everywhere you go, everywhere is a synagogue, and they're going to just keep reading the Torah of Moses. So they're going to hear it. Okay, so I'm not obligated to keep it, but I still have to hear it all the time? Yeah, now we're getting somewhere. Well, I'm confused. Like, what... How do I understand the Torah then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I would like to share with you seven things. Now listen, okay. (sighs) Everyone take a big deep breath. There is these seven points. I I literally own, for each one of these points, there's like entire book-length treatments. There's no way I could say everything about this. But quick show of hands. And for those of you watching online as well, you have to raise your hand if if you're streaming with us. How many of you have ever felt a little bit confused about, say, the book of Leviticus? Okay. You're safe. I want to offer you some principles that will help us as we read the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Exodus or Numbers. Seven things that help us understand why we don't pick and choose how we relate to, in particular, the the Old Testament, but in particular, the Torah. Principle number one, the Torah is not just simply legislation. Most English translations, when we say the Torah, we translate it as the law. But I have become increasingly convinced that that is not the best way 
to refer to the Torah. First of all, just if you took those first five books of the Bible, there's stories, there's poems, there's songs, there's treaty language. Yes, there are laws, but there's also wisdom and there's instruction. If you look in Psalm 119, the whole Psalm is just this big long poem praising God for his Torah. There is synonym after synonym after synonym used in their statutes, commands, testimonies, principles, wisdom, promises, his word, his righteousness. To just say it's the law is is too narrow. The Torah is not merely legislation. There is law, but even in a minute I'll talk about even our understanding of law is a little bit different. So it's not merely legislation. I've actually been trying to get into the habit of just saying Torah and not the law, just to say Torah. It's a perfectly good word um, and we could use it. Number two, the Torah is a unity. During the time of the Reformation, some people were struggling with what do we do with the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy? And they said, well, you know, some of the laws, they're all ceremonial. They have to do with like temple worship. So those don't count anymore because the temple's destroyed and Jesus is the new temple and he's the last sacrifice. So, so we can ignore those ones. Some of the laws are like civil. They're, they're governmental. It's how the nation of Israel would, would rule. And we don't need to pay attention to those because we're not national Israel. We live in different countries. But there's these moral laws and those are the ones we still need to pay attention to. Now, I think it's a, a, a helpful exercise and a, a helpful way to think through it. The problem is, is it's just really artificial. In fact, the New Testament would seem to say the exact opposite. In James, the brother of Jesus, James chapter 2 verse 10, says, if you keep the whole entire Torah, but then you break one little part of it, you're actually guilty of breaking the whole thing. So the Torah is a unity. Within that unity, however, now we'll swing to the other side. The Torah is not a one-size-fits-all operation. You know, when you open up the Torah, you open up the book. Of, I just put my reference there. My proof is the book of Leviticus itself. You read through the book of Leviticus. Do you know that there are so many of the commandments in the book of Leviticus that didn't even apply to the average Israelite because there are commands just for the Levites, There are different commands for uh, the priests, and then there are even still different commands just for the high priest. There are some commands for men. There are some commands for women. There are some commands during peacetime. There are some commands during wartime. There's even commands just for soldiers about what to do when they need to use the bathroom out in their war camp, okay? It's like in the Bible. It's just one of those things that just, well, if I was less mature, I would think it was hilarious, but... The Torah is not a one-size-fits-all thing. And sometimes when we have a reductionistic view, we think, I mean, there have been people who have tried to do this like, you know, I'm going to live biblically for a year, and then they go through and try to do all the things, and it's just ridiculous because that's just not how it works. Number four, and this one is going to spend a minute on. Number four, there are laws in the Torah, but Torah functions differently than our laws. In our laws... See, we, we are the inheritors of Western Greco-Roman thought about legislation. We like laws. We like things like the NFL rule book. Abstract, clear, trying to come up with an answer for every possible situation. That is not how law worked in the world of the ancient Near East. The law functioned a lot more like, well, you might call it um, example or case law. 
I'm going to read a quote. I've got a long quote here from John H. Walton and J. Harvey Walton. And in in case you're confused about that, it's a father and son who have the exact same name and for some reason decided to be weird about it. So this is what they say. When we think of laws, we imagine a normative list of rules with accompanying consequences for breaking them. When a person goes to court, the lawyers, judge, and jury try to determine if the rule has actually been broken and to what extent the consequence should be applied. The system relies heavily on logical precision. I have jury duty in a couple of weeks. Hmm. I have to have logical precision. We very specifically do not want the judge or the jury to apply their intuition about what they think constitutes wrongness. However, people in the ancient world did want the judge to apply his intuition about wrongness to the cases he judged and to consider each on its own merits. Ancient legal wisdom instructed the judge on what rightness and wrongness looked like so he would be able to produce rightness and eliminate wrongness with his verdicts. This is going to stretch you, but listen. The texts do not teach what the law is. They provide a model for right and wrong so that the judges will know it when they see it. Because here's the deal. Could you ever write down enough laws for every possible situation? No, but it seems like the U.S. government is trying to do that, okay? For those of you who are parents, you have dealt with things in your parenting. You're like, I have never heard of that happening before in the history of children, right? Your kid found some unique new way to do something like, well, I never thought I would have to write something down about this. You know what I'm talking about? But instead, you can say, you can use your intuition and your wisdom as a parent to say, okay, that's not how it's supposed to be. Because you have had your, your, your moral intuition shaped by teaching. Carmen Joy Imes, who's another biblical scholar, just such a, a, a breath of fresh air. She said about the same idea. Could it be that the laws of Sinai fit this ancient category of law as wisdom? I think so. In Old Testament times, the instructions at Sinai would have been understood as a paragon of wisdom. A portrait of a covenant-keeping Israelite. So the point there is not even that ancient Israelites would have been like, here's all the things you do, here's all the things you don't do. They would have said, what does it look like to live a wise life? In fact, we can see this in the way that the Apostle Paul approaches it. In in, in Romans 13, he's like, you know know the commandments, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. He's like, or you could just love them because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Point number five, this one's really important. Torah as a legal document, is no longer binding legal covenant. And the Apostle Paul is absolutely clear about this. The Torah was a binding legal covenant between God and the people of Israel. And there was repeated, nonstop covenant unfaithfulness. And that covenant is from this perspective, from binding law, from binding legislation, is dead and buried. And the prophets began to speak that God was going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. A covenant that's not written on stone, but written on the hearts of his people. And this covenant would eventually come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it goes first 
to the Jew and then is extended out to all of us who are not Jewish if we will simply put our faith in Jesus Christ. So when we read the Torah, we do not read it as binding covenantal obligation that if we obey it, we receive the blessings. And if we disobey it, we receive the cursings because Jesus received all of the curses of violating the covenant. And in him, we receive all of the blessings. This is good news, friends. And I share this with you because there are some to this day who might try to trouble you to say, if you are not obeying every single law in the Old Testament, there are Christians who will try to tell you that it is incumbent upon even Gentile believers to obey every single thing that you read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it is just flatly not true. It might be a little bit of a fringe, but it is enough that it warrants mentioning. So the Torah does not have the force of binding legal covenant. We are brought into right relationship with God through the covenant of Jesus' blood. End of discussion. That does not mean, however, that the Torah has no enduring value. Because all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So the Torah is still a prophetic witness that points forward to Jesus. When you read in the book of Leviticus, all of those sacrifices and all of the prayers and all of the offerings and all of the things, we no longer are under that as a binding legal covenant, but every single word of it points forward to the death and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. When you read even things like, you know, seemingly obscure commandments about property lines or cleaning your house or getting rid of mold or when the priest has to inspect a, you know, cancerous, leprous skin thing, somehow, and I don't necessarily know the answer off the top of my head, but in some way, shape, or form, every single one of those words points us to our Savior Jesus. So when you read Leviticus, you think of Jesus. I, man, I really want to preach through the book of Leviticus someday. It would make everyone so uncomfortable and it would delight me so much. And lastly, the Torah still serves as wisdom for living. Okay, when you read in the Torah, you know, when your ox loses its mind and gores your neighbor, I'm like, well, that's, that's never going to happen to me. Because one of my bucket list items is to never own an ox, okay? I will, like, I am on the record. This is going out on the internet, so you know it's got to be true. I will never own an ox. So I don't say, okay, that verse doesn't apply. Well, I do own a car. Uh, you know, a large, strong tool that's used for work purposes. Might there be some wisdom principles I could glean from the verses about owning an ox that I could apply to owning a car? Okay, I don't barter in gold and silver. We don't have, we don't, literally don't pull out like scales and weights and measures to do our business transactions, but might there be some wisdom principles to glean there about conducting honest business? It's interesting. I um, spent some time with uh, Rabbi Matt this last week. We offered a burnt offering to the Lord, a cigar in my backyard, and talked about the Torah. And um, even you know, the reason why there's so much other extra biblical stuff that comes from the Jewish community is because they are constantly wrestling with what's the wisest way to live this stuff out. This is just, this is just how God invites us into the wrestling match. 
I know this is tough stuff, but if God gave us an NFL rule book with every do and don't spelled out, we would just go to the rule book and we wouldn't go to him. I'm, I'm convinced of that. All right, so it's a tough thing, right? Okay, I, I've given you these seven principles. It's hard to know exactly how to read this. So, so maybe I could give you a few thoughts, a few questions of how do I know? I'm, I'm reading some law. I'm reading some instruction. I'm reading some point. You know, I'm, I'm in Leviticus. Here are some questions to ask yourself. You ready? Question number one. Is this instruction related to the nature of creation? So I already mentioned the, the don't drink blood thing. That is given before the Torah even ever shows up. The witness of the scripture says that drinking blood is something that is related to the way that God created the universe. Don't do it. I would put sexual ethics into that same category. This is how God created the nature of the world. Even, even, again, before the Torah, think about the creation narrative. Sun and moon, day and night, sky above and, and, and land below, the dry land, the sea. There's all these pairings, male and female. It's not that there's an NFL rule book, you know, that you can go down and say, okay, who am I allowed to touch? How am I allowed to touch them? When can we do it? It's not that. It's that the scriptures paint us this portrait and we apply it to our moral intuitions and we live out of that portrait that it's painting. Is this instruction related to the nature of creation? Number two, is this instruction explicitly set aside because of what Jesus did? So the clearest example of that would be animal sacrifices. We do not offer animal sacrifices because there has been a once and for all perfect sacrifice never again to be repeated when we gather on Sundays. Even our language and the way that we speak of communion, it is not a sacrifice being offered to the Lord. He died once and for all. We eat and we drink to celebrate, to remember, and to commune with God not to sacrifice Jesus. Question number three. When you're reading the Old Testament and there's some kind of random law, does the New Testament explicitly reinforce something? You know, we're we're not under the law as binding legal covenant, but you read through the letters of Paul, you see the Ten Commandments showing up all the time. You see the same consistent portrait of, of human sexuality. You see the same consistent portrait about idolatry. Where does the New Testament say, no, no, this is, this is still the same. Where is their continuity? Question number four. You need to look at culture. What did this instruction mean in their culture and what might it mean in mine? Again, the example of owning an ox versus owning a car. Right? A, a stamp and a seal on a king's letter versus, you know, signing your name on something. What did it mean for their culture? What what can I glean and how can I use this to apply to my own culture? And then lastly, number five, how does this instruction fit into the big picture of redemption history? We're living in a storyline. Creation, the fall, Israel for the nations, Jesus, the son of God. And now we're waiting between his first coming and his second coming. We have to know our place in the story. How does this instruction fit in to this bigger picture of redemptive history? Don't ever read Leviticus or Deuteronomy apart from the knowledge that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, and will one day return again in glory. 
Don't read Leviticus in the abstract. Read it connected to Jesus. Well, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Friends, I I won't stand up here and pretend to tell you like this is, oh, it's just so easy. This is challenging stuff. This is one of the most challenging things about being a believer. And we wish, again, we wish that maybe God had just made it super easy. Here's the rules. Do them and live. Don't do them and die. But instead, God, like Jacob, has invited us into a wrestling match with him. That we might be filled with his spirit. That we might come to the scriptures with humility. God, I don't understand it. I'm glad I don't have a Bible that I can understand because I have a God that I can't fully comprehend. If I could fully comprehend God and if I could fully comprehend all of this, then I wouldn't need him because I could just rely on myself. Instead, I'm invited into relationship with the God of the universe. I want to encourage you that we, we need to together pursue wisdom. We must pursue wisdom together. Not just checking boxes. Did I do the right thing? Do the wrong thing? No, no, no. This is wisdom. And we need to do it together. And it's going to be slower than you might want because our culture loves BuzzFeed videos. World War I explained in three minutes. What nonsense. World War I is one of the most complicated things in the history of humankind. You're going to explain it to me in three minutes? I call shenanigans. The Torah explained in two minutes. Nope. It just is going to take some time. We're going to have to pursue wisdom together. Community group is going to be fun this week, okay? And number two, when it comes to evangelism and engaging with our culture, I just want to encourage you, we can't simply rely upon what all the Bible says. I love that heart, and I want every one of us to have that as our own conviction, But when it comes to evangelizing the lost, first of all, they don't care. And they've already said, you pick and choose. So you can't just say the Bible says. We need to be a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more creative, a little bit more um, relational in how we communicate the truths of the gospel, how we communicate what's right and what's wrong, how we communicate these things. Because our culture, by and large, doesn't care what the Bible says. But we do. Because we've known the Savior of the Scriptures. And until they know the Savior, they're not going to value this. Commitment to Jesus includes commitment to the Scriptures that he taught, that he embodied, that he fulfilled perfectly on our behalf. And as we go to the Lord's table now, let's remember that we are saved by his grace, by his perfect obedience to the Torah, not ours. Lord, we thank you that this is challenging. We thank you this is tough. God, because if it was simple and quick and easy, we wouldn't need to rely upon you. Lord, I pray that anything that I said today that was of of your truth and of your word, I pray that it would sink down deep into our bones. Anything I said that was not, would it fall to the wayside and be remembered no more? Lord, what we need is the truth of your word brought to life in our hearts by the spirit who inspired them to be written. And as we turn to the Lord's table now, would you help us to remember Christ's perfect obedience to the Torah on our behalf, in Jesus' name, amen.